0: Turn in your Bible with me now to the book of Colossians. It's found on page uh, 1165 of the Bibles that are found underneath our chairs. 1165. Colossians chapter 1. We're beginning a new sermon series today. Colossians chapter 1. Let me introduce the book of Colossians to you first before we dive into the subject for today, okay? Two questions I think we ought to answer, and that is, number one, what is the book of Colossians? And secondly, what's it all about? So let me briefly highlight those two things. First of all, what is this book of Colossians that I have asked you to turn to this morning? Well, it's a letter. It's a letter written by the Apostle Paul back around the year A.D. 60 to a church in a little town called Colossae, which was located in Asia Minor and in modern-day Turkey. It's one of Paul's prison letters, which means that he wrote Colossians along with three other letters from prison. He spent a few years in Roman prison, and that's why we call it a prison letter. Uh, Paul had never visited Colossae himself, but there was a thriving church there thanks to the church-planting efforts of a fellow by the name of Epaphras, whom you will see mentioned in verse 7 of the uh, passage I'm going to read in just a moment. So why did Paul write this letter? He wrote it because he was concerned. He was concerned about the Colossians. He wasn't concerned about them living in open sin. He wasn't concerned about them because they were breaking the Ten Commandments. He wasn't concerned about them because they were throwing wild parties or murdering people or anything like that. Paul was concerned about the Colossians because they were slipping away from the gospel. They were drifting away from their moorings in the gospel of Jesus Christ. What's the gospel? Well, literally, the word gospel means good news. The gospel is the good news about Jesus Christ, his death on the cross, his resurrection, the love of Christ. That's what we mean by the gospel. And at one time, these Colossians had embraced the gospel. They had believed the gospel. They had loved the gospel. But unfortunately, over time, false teachers crept into the church in Colossae and they began to tell the people that they needed to do more than believe the gospel. They needed something in addition to the gospel of Christ. These false teachers said that the Colossians needed a a secret form of knowledge that was available only to the special spiritual people. They told them that they needed to follow rules and rituals and ceremonies, and traditions. They needed to be more self-disciplined. They needed to be more self-denying. They needed to be less worldly. Now those things are good, but these false teachers elevated those things to a higher level than the gospel. And they claimed to know God in a deeper way. But what they were really doing was spreading self-righteousness and pride and discord in the church in Colossae. They even told the the people in Colossae that they needed to get in touch with angels and supernatural powers in order to have a victorious Christian life. So Paul wrote this letter to put these concerns out there on the table and say to the Colossian Christians, come back. Come back to the gospel. Don't slip away. As your pastor, you know what my biggest concern is for us as a church? My biggest concern is not that we're not going to reach our budget this year. My biggest concern is not that we're not going to have enough classes for children. My biggest concern is that we'll begin to drift away from the gospel. It's so very easy to do. See, just like the Colossians. We could get enamored with charismatic leaders and new teachings and popular authors instead of enamored with Jesus Christ. We could focus on rules and traditions and programs and techniques instead of focusing on Christ. And that's why I want to take us through this book, the book of Colossians. I'm going to call this uh, series of sermons Gospel-Centered Living. And every week we're going to look at another very practical area of day-to-day life and how the gospel impacts that area. So for today, I'm going to read chapter 1, verses 1 through 14 of this wonderful book. Colossians 1, 1 through 14. Listen carefully to the Word of God. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the holy and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, the faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven and that you have already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. All over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in all its truth. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a, fellow, a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is God's word. So let's talk today about the gospel-driven life. The gospel-driven life. What is at the center of your thinking on a day-to-day basis. Is it the gospel? What drives you? What motivates you? What is it that is operating way down here at the level of your interior motivations and makes you the person that you are? What is it? Are you a gospel-driven person? You know, I'm going to say this morning that most of us are driven and motivated by things other than the gospel. I'll prove it to you. I want you to take out a piece of paper. Didn't you hate it when your teacher said that? Take out a piece of paper, number it 1 through 10. And you can do that on your little uh, Bible study insert if you want to, or a scratch sheet of paper, something like that. Anything you can get, just pull it out. 1 through 10, here's a little quiz, and they're all true-false. Put a T for true, put a F for false. You know the, you know the game, right? Alright, let's go down through the list. I've got ten statements I'm gonna show you. Here's the first one. True or false? I tend to compare myself with other people. Number two. Most of the time I'm anxious about friends, money, school, family, etc. C or F, true or false. Number three, I rarely say I'm sorry. You don't need to, by the way, elbow your spouse on that one. Uh, (laughs) Number four, I need to be in control. True or false. Number five, prayer is usually my last resort. Okay. Okay. By the way, I'm not going to make you share these, so be honest. Number six, I often feel discouraged and defeated. Number seven, I tend to get defensive when told I've made a mistake. Number eight, most of the time, I feel guilty and condemned. Number nine, it's all up to me. And finally, number ten, I often focus on the weaknesses and failings of other people. How'd you do? (laughs) Let me tell you what's going on here. These ten statements would be symptoms of a life that is not driven by the gospel. If, uh, If you only said true... To one or two of those statements, congratulations, you're doing really well. Tell me your secret. <laughs> if, uh, if you said true to three to five of them, you're doing okay, but you need some help. And if you said true to six or more of those statements, you really need this sermon today. So listen up. I want to ask you this question. Why is it? Why is it that somebody can be a Christian on the way to heaven, forgiven of all of his or her sins, loved eternally by God, and still be an insecure, worried, fearful, controlling, narcissistic, proud, or guilt-ridden person? How can that be? You say, well... We're all that way to some extent, and that's true, we are, but it bothers me that I can say true to so many of those statements, and it ought to bother you too. The Bible says in Romans chapter 8 that there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So why is it that many of us feel condemned and guilty? The, Jesus said, John 14, 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. So why is it that many of us feel anxious and worried much of the time? The Bible says in Colossians chapter 3, Forgive as the Lord forgave you. So why do so many followers of Jesus have a hard time forgiving people? Jesus said in Matthew 7, Ask Ask, and it will be given to you. So why do so many of us find prayer a burden rather than a delight? The Bible says in Romans 6, sin shall not be your master. So why do so many of us feel defeated by sin and unable to move forward and get on top of our sin patterns? Here's the answer. Why? Because we haven't gotten the gospel down deep enough into the center of our being. That's why. You see, it is possible to understand the gospel and yet not live out of the gospel on a daily basis. It's possible to have the gospel up here in our head and yet not down here in the heart Where it begins to define us and drive us and motivate us and change us. Instead, our need for approval drives us or our desire for popularity drives us. Or our guilty feelings drive us. Or our enslavement to duty and obligation drives us. Or our need to atone for our sins or the sins of other people sometimes drives us. Our need to control drives and motivates us. I know what I'm talking about. For many years after my conversion experience, I was driven by this need for people's affirmation. I needed to preach the gospel to myself, and I need to do it every day now. I need the gospel to go down deeper and deeper so that these idols of success and approval don't motivate and define me anymore. Now, thankfully, over time, I've discovered that it's the love of God that really satisfies my heart. And those idols are ravenous beasts that just devour more and more of my heart and give me nothing back in return. But if I don't preach the gospel to myself every day, I'll slip away. I'll slip away from the gospel back to my idols as quick as that. Believing the gospel, holding on to the gospel, having it at the center of your being and in the forefront of your thought life, that's the key to living the Christian life. You say, well, that's pretty obvious. Well, no, it's not obvious. Let me show you something Martin Luther said. Martin Luther said this, I must hearken to the gospel, which teaches me not what I ought to do, but what Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has done for me. This is the truth of the gospel. It is also the principal article of all Christian doctrine, wherein the knowledge of all godliness consists. Most necessary it is, therefore, that we should know this article well, teach it unto others, and beat it into their heads continually. In other words, if we stop preaching the gospel to ourselves, we are going to naturally slip away. Now, I don't mean to be simplistic. You may need counseling or medical care to get over some of your issues. You may need to get into deeper community with other people. You might need a more consistent devotional life. You might need to repent of a sin that's choking off the life of the Holy Spirit in you. But underneath all those things, it's still primarily the gospel that you need. Let me show you something interesting in the text that I read earlier. Look at verses 4, 5, and 6 of Colossians 1. In verse 4, Paul writes to the Colossians and says, We have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints, the faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven and that you've already heard about in the word of truth, The gospel that has come to you all over the world. This gospel is bearing fruit and growing just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in all its truth. Do you hear what Paul is saying there? He's saying to these Colossians, he's saying, I see in you faith. I see in you and I've heard about your love. And he says, you know where that faith and love came from? It came from the hope. That's stored up for you in heaven. And then he says, but you know where the hope came from that you have? The hope came from the gospel. The gospel that you heard about. The gospel that Epaphras preached to you. You see, the gospel is what gives birth to the fruits of the Christian life. Faith, hope, and love. It's kind of like this. You're probably wondering why this plant's been up here. Uh, this is my plant it 's uh, in my office. My wife gave me this bamboo plant, and I thought, well, this will make a good illustration this morning. What you see up here is the the plant itself up up the, you, you see the fruit, in other words, but the most important part of this plant is down here in the part you can 't see down in the soil, where the roots are, where the nutrients are, where the moisture is. You see, you know very well that if this part is penalized, if this part is compromised, if, if this plant somehow learned a way to slip away from this part down here, all of this up here would dry up. Now, it could be a fake plant for all you know because a lot of times we're able to fake it in the Christian life. We're able to put on the fruits and act like we're spiritual, but the truth is still known down in here. And so just as this plant needs the soil and nutrients that are invisible, so you need the gospel down in the interior of your being where, frankly, nobody is looking. And very few people are going to ask you, are you getting the gospel today? Very few people are going to come up to you and say, how's the gospel taking root in your heart? Are you preaching it to yourself every day? I don't think I've been asked that for months. And that's what we need to be asking one another. So, believing the gospel is where it all begins and, and that's the most important part. And, and you say, like I said earlier, you say, well that's obvious. It's obvious the gospel's the key to the Christian life. But the truth of the matter is it's not obvious. We think the gospel is what non-Christians need. You know, I need to tell non-Christians about the love of Jesus. And the truth is, everybody needs the gospel. You and I need it as much as ever in our lives these days. So the question I want to address this morning is, how do we get it? How do we get a gospel-driven life? How do we begin to define ourselves, not by our performance, not by our success or failure, but by the love of God. How do we get a gospel-motivated, gospel-centered, gospel-driven life? And here's the answer. We're going to be breaking this apart in our series on Colossians much, much more, but I'm going to scratch the surface with you today and kind of give you the feel for where we're going to go. Here is the answer. We become more and more gospel-driven as we rehearse and as we believe and as we rely on what God has done for us in Christ. We become more gospel-driven as we rehearse and believe and rely on what God has done for us in Christ. I love the show Heroes. My wife and I have gotten addicted to the show Heroes. We didn't watch it season one or season two, but we went out and rented the DVDs and now we're caught up season three Starts tomorrow. Anybody out here, uh, a Heroes fanatic? Okay, we got a few. My favorite character is Matt Parkman. Matt Parkman plays the raw, is a uh, police detective. And Matt Parkman's ability is that of reading people's minds, right? He can read your mind. Well, I want you to know I can read your mind. I have a great ability to read minds. And as I look into your thought life, a lot of you are saying things to yourself like this almost hourly. I'm such a sinner. God cannot possibly think much of me. I've heard I've heard those thoughts. Or some of you say, I've let God down too many times. His patience is run out on me. Or some of you say, I need to try harder. If only I can get over my sin and stop sinning, I'll be better and God will love me. You know what? That kind of thinking will kill faith, hope, and love. That's not gospel. That's the false gospel of human performance. And it absolutely is counter to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to give you this morning before we leave here, some new thoughts to think. Three, in fact. And they're all based on verses 12, 13, and 14. So let's go. Three new thoughts to think that will help you be more gospel-driven. First, when you were unwanted, God received you. When you were unwanted, God received you. Look at verse 12. Paul says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light." Notice, if you will, please, that word, qualified. You ever feel disqualified? I remember when I was in high school, I was a wrestler. And I was in the, as I recall, the 148-pound class. Can't believe that. And I went to a wrestling tournament, stepped on the scales, and I said, One hundred and forty nine. I was disqualified. I had to sit in the stands as a spectator and I felt so rejected. I felt so out of place because I wasn't qualified. Jesus says you, through your faith in him, are qualified. That means that you who once were a stranger are now a friend of God. You who once were an outsider have been given intimacy with God. It means God has approved you. He has certified you. He has authorized you to be a member of his family. He has made you fit. You will never be disqualified. If you've put your trust in Jesus, you know what? You've met all the conditions or God has met them for you. You don't have to strive to be accepted anymore. You already are accepted. You already are righteous through your faith in the justifying work of Christ. And get this, nothing you ever do will be so bad that God will change his mind. Nothing you do will ever be so bad that God will look at you one day and say, Oh, I made a mistake with you. You're no longer one of mine. No, you are forever An insider. And notice what you are now that you're an insider. God says that you're a saint. You see that? You have the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. I was talking one time this past week with a woman at my doctor's office. And she went on and on and on about all the saints that she believes in. Saint this, Saint that, and what these different saints do. The gospel says you don't have to have a saint because you already are a saint. Look at verse 2 of our text this morning. Verse 2 said, to the holy and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. That word holy, you might as well change it because literally it means to the saints. To the holy ones. It's the Greek word hagioi. It means that you are a saint already because you're in Christ. When God looks at you, he sees a saint. Can you believe that? The second thing I want you to know is not only were you received when you were a stranger, but when you were helpless, God rescued you. When you were helpless, God rescued you. Look at verse 13. Verse 13 says, for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He has rescued us. That word rescued means delivered or liberated or saved. Think, for example, of those pictures you saw from hurricanes Katrina or um, Ike when the Coast Guard helicopters were overhead, lowering down a lifeline to somebody standing on a roof. That's what God did for you when you were lost and miserable in your sin. This verse goes on to say in verse 13 that you have been brought into the kingdom of Christ. That phrase means that you've been transferred. It means that you've been plucked out of one place and placed down in another. You've been relocated out of the kingdom of darkness, and relocated to the kingdom of light. The Bible talks about hell being a place of blackest darkness. And God has transferred you out of hell and given you a place in heaven. He has snatched you out of despair and given you hope. Like it says in Psalm 40, He lifted you out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire, set your feet on a rock, and gave you a firm place to stand. God has rescued you. And then the third thing that God did, because of Jesus, through the gospel, not only has he received you and rescued you, but when you were guilty, God redeemed you. When you were guilty, God redeemed you. Look at verse 14 once more. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This picture here is that of a slave or a prisoner of war shackled up and being set free, being emancipated. To redeem somebody means to release somebody from bondage by the payment of a ransom price. That's what it means. We have in our home a cat named Cleopatra. And often when my wife and I look at our cat Cleopatra, we say, there's a picture of redemption. The reason is that we got her out of uh, being a astray. She was living up under a building and we brought Cleopatra home and now she's a beautiful, secure, happy little kitty. She's been redeemed. You've been redeemed from your bondage by the blood of Jesus Christ. God receives the unwanted. He rescues the helpless. He ransoms the guilty. Why? Why did he do that? Did he do that because you've been a good churchgoer? No. Did he do it because you've worked hard and proven your dedication? No. Did he do it because you read your Bible and stay out of trouble? No. He did it because he loves you. Last Sunday morning in Chesterton, Indiana, a little kid named Doug Zaner, age 10, was playing in the swollen creek that ran near his house when Doug slipped into the creek and was sucked into the round mouth of a steel culvert. A next-door neighbor named Mark Thanos heard his wife scream out about Doug, and he ran out of his house and jumped into the creek to try to rescue the boy. Close behind Mark Thanos was his 74-year-old father, who did the same thing, ran down to the creek, jumped in the In the creek to try to save little Doug. Well, the current in the creek was so strong that it pushed Doug through the three foot wide culvert and dumped him out about 20 feet downstream. Another neighbor just simply pulled Doug out of the, out of the creek. But Mark Thanos and his elderly father didn't come to the surface. They were trapped in the culvert and never made it out alive. Later on, a reporter was talking to little Doug. And this is what he said. He said, I wish they knew that I could swim through that tube. He said, I wish they didn't love me that much. Jesus Christ saw you drowning in your sin and misery. He saw that you were headed for destruction. And rather than let that happen... Jesus jumped in after you. He immersed himself in your sin and suffered the experience of the wrath and curse of God for you. He set you free from your chains. Jesus Christ loved you that much. Friends, never stop thinking about that. Never stop preaching that to yourself rehearse it believe it rely on it let's pray lord god thank you so much for the gospel help us please not to drift away from it into some of the things that we do to try to justify ourselves lord help us to know the gospel well and teach it to others and help us even to beat it into each other's heads continually jesus Thanks for receiving us when we were unwanted, for rescuing us when we were helpless, for redeeming us when we were guilty. We want to know more about it, Lord, so please help us every day to love the gospel. And we pray this in Jesus' name.